If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg, bringing you an episode on the gender wage gap and the ways that our sector devalues and mistreats the women who work in it. We're going to be talking to Jess Cooper. Before I introduce Jess, let me just share with you that in the not very distant future on August 26th, we are going to be doing something a little bit new. We're doing an Ask Dolph Live. So I often say, if you email me a question, I'm going to answer it. Or if you call me and ask me a question, I'm going to answer it. Well, a while back, one of our podcast listeners emailed me a question. I answered it. And they said, thanks so much. By the way, you should really do you should really do this live where you just take questions kind of quote unquote on the air. So Lexi and I were intrigued by this and we decided, okay, we're going to give an Ask Dolph Live a shot. So if you want to register for Ask Dolph Live, go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com. You can register. You can share with us what question you would really like to get an answer to. And we would love, love to get you on that episode. But again, we're going to be recording it on August 26th. It is going to be recorded live. So please do register. And now it is my pleasure to introduce to you Jess Cooper. Now, let me just say, when you look at Jess Cooper's LinkedIn page, two things immediately jump out at you. The first is leadership. She has a strong background in nonprofit leadership, both in marketing, fundraising, and as an executive director. The second is swimming. So the other thing you see is that both personally and professionally, swimming has been a big part of Jess's life. And so today, originally, Jess and I, we were going to talk about something else. And then in exploring our possible topics, we thought, you know, this would be a really good opportunity to explore the gender wage gap and the ways that our sector devalues and mistreats the women who work in it. And it's it is impossible from my perspective for me to have this conversation without also just, you know, frankly acknowledging that I get that I am walking into this conversation with a significant amount of 
cis white male privilege. And so I, I am remiss if I do not acknowledge that. Um, I will try to really make sure that I keep that privilege in check. And I also ask for people's forbearance and patience with me if, you know, if I say something that maybe is not, did not say it as well as I could have or intended to. But I do think that whether you're walking into this conversation with privilege or not, this is a conversation that's very important in our sector. And it's something that we need to be open and talking about. And if we're not, it's just not going to get better. So with that kind of long preamble, I am just really super excited. Jess, welcome to the podcast. Dolph, thank you so much. Two things. Thank you for that intro. I feel like a rock star right now. And second, thank you for just bringing to light our privilege. We have privilege in different ways, as you just mentioned, but I've had this conversation a lot. I know we're talking about the gender disparity today, but there are so many other disparities that we see when it comes to hiring biases that are not necessarily gender-based. So I'm so glad that we are having this conversation today and that we can start it here and see where we see where we go. Uh, well, thank you. And, and thank you for being willing to come on it and have it. I know, I know sometimes it can be a little scary or feel not quite 100% okay to, to tell what the truth is that you've seen. And I'm so grateful that you're willing to put yourself in that place and, and have that conversation. So I know that you have a really powerful story to share about the gender wage gap. I do. And I will tell you, the way I tell this story has changed over time. When I was in it, I told it completely differently. You know, I kind of felt like the victim, the no way out. This feels very dark. It feels very bleak. But also being a woman, and I feel like this is very common, I told myself, I'll work harder. I'll do more. They won't be able to ignore me, right? That's really common. We do that to ourselves. I think women more so than men, but I just told myself I can do this. But then I just got brought down more and more. And now being pretty far removed from that situation, I can't tell you word for word the emails anymore that I used to be able to tell you. I can't tell you really exactly how I felt in those moments. I can I have a general feeling, but it doesn't carry the same weight or burden that it once did. And I'm really thankful for that. But it all started because I was offered this position that was a combination of two of my passions. And I thought, this has to be the right thing. And I attempted to negotiate my salary upfront and I got nowhere. But I thought, okay, this these, like I said, two of my passions. So this is going to be what I'm going to do. And I'll just work so hard in this first year that I can't be ignored because I was also told, you know, after three to six months, we'll give you this raise. After a year, you know, there's a potential for like a five figure bonus. I thought, wow, that is really incredible, especially in the nonprofit space. So I thought, I can do this. I know how to work hard. So that first year, I did exactly that. I exceeded expectations, expectations that weren't really even set by anyone else more so than they were by me. And we sat down to have this conversation. It was myself and two gentlemen in the organization. And they said, well, oh, you've done a really great job. We're going to give you this as a raise and this as a bonus. And I just sat there, you know. I didn't say anything because they did not know that I had seen my predecessor's contract. It had been left 
on a flash drive that was given to me with all of the organization's files. So while I'm in there trying to find things, I come across this file and I'm skimming through and I realize this person was middle-aged white male starting salary was almost 20% more than mine was plus moving expenses. And I couldn't even negotiate a couple thousand dollars up front. And so when I was offered this bonus and this raise after a year, having this knowledge, I just asked, they said, well, you seem displeased with that. I said, well, I just want to know how long it's going to take until I make what my predecessor was making starting out. And they did not know how to respond. I'm guessing they probably did not know that I had the information that I had. And then we started in the conversation. Well, if you add in, you know, we pay for this for you and we pay for that, you're, you're almost there. And, you know, how often does this happen? You know, well, if you if you add in all of these other bonuses, they're not financial, but but we're still doing you a favor. It's pretty much the same. It is not the same. So that was that was the start of it. And I stayed with this organization for almost four years. And over the course of this, my tenure with them, many comments were made by other individuals that we had relationships with in the organization starting out, oh, I see why you hired her. You know, comments like that. And then toward the end, it was a lot of stay in your lane. Though I had the experience, I had the education. And by the end of it, I had board members calling me saying, I wouldn't want any female in my life whom I care about to be in your position. And that's when I got to the point where I thought, this isn't worth it. Although I love what I'm doing, it's taking an emotional toll on me and my mental health, and that's not okay because I am more than my job and I am more than this type of treatment in an organization, and that's when I decided to take a step back. Hmm. I know there's no words to really say, gosh, I'm sorry you experienced that, but I do just have to say no one, no one should experience that in any workplace ever. And I get that you know that, but I just, sorry, I just, I feel the need to say that. I, I do want us to unpack, because there's a lot there, I want us to unpack. And as we, maybe we can just start with the salary and compensation piece. Because one of the things that I often note when I talk about pay equity in the sector is, you know, most people typically get incremental raises. And so if you start out at 20 or 30% less, those incremental raises, you're still 20 to 30% less year after year after year. And that doesn't feel like much, maybe for a year or two. But when you multiply that times, you know, most of us start working now in our early 20s and Sorry for the people with early 20s yet who not figured this out, probably working until your early 70s. So when you multiply that times 50 years, you're talking real money, like millions. Yeah, and it's interesting you bring this up because whenever I mentioned, oh, well, how long will it take until I make where this person started? It was, well, when you add in all of these things and you don't know that he would have gotten a bonus either or he would have gotten a raise. It's like, what... Of course he would have gotten a bonus and a raise. You know, it's it's downplaying that error that I think really bothered me the most. 
because it was a justification for the actions. And I can't remember what study it was, but it was a study that a colleague of mine told me about where a hiring committee was looking at two different resumes. You had a typical, what you would think to be a female name on top of one resume and what you would assume to be a male's name on the other resume. So in this instance, education was higher on one, on the female and experience was higher on the male. They go through the process, they choose the male and they say, well, why did you choose the male? It's because he had more experience. We're looking for more experience. So then the second round of this, they swap the names. Now the male has the higher education and the female has more experience. They chose the male again. They said, well, we're actually, we're, we're looking for education. And I feel if we do not set out on a path where we are being very direct about what and what we're looking for, the qualities, what we value to be most important, we're going to continue in this trend of just choosing what we know traditionally to be that role, you know, the male CEO. That's changing. That it does not hold true anymore. You see powerful women in these Fortune 500 companies and these small nonprofits doing incredible things we cannot continue to undervalue the women that are out there doing this work. And I feel that if we don't stop to look at our traditions and the way we look at these traditional roles, we're going to stay in the same patterns. And that's not, that's not okay. Right. And, and I'll say, I mean, it is clear that it's systemic in the nonprofit sector. I'm not going to get these, these numbers exact, but it is something like 70% uh, or 75% of the people working in the sector are women and 70 or 75% of the people in executive positions in the sector are men. It is very clear that it is something systemic. Otherwise, we would not see that stat. Yes, and I do have to say, when I lived in Georgia, I was surrounded by strong female executives whom I saw take these small organizations into organizations that were multi-million dollars, that were coming up with the most innovative plans, and they were collaborative, and they were involving the community and nurturing these relationships in ways that we don't always see. And that is what I have always seen, are these strong women in these positions and I always wanted to be one of them. You know, I wanted, I was that, they, they were my superheroes in this world, not the men. I didn't see the men. I only saw the women that I was surround that I was surrounded by during that time. And that's what I strive to be in my professional nonprofit life. And in your experience, those women who have been able to break that, you know, that glass barrier, those that you've gotten to know, like what, what's the, for them, what's been the secret? I would say having a, a strong supportive board. One of these leaders, she took a sabbatical. She and her, her board offered her that and, and urged her to take that time to take care of herself and take care of her family. Another board with this, with this other organization they encouraged her to explore other relationships and opportunities outside of their current partnerships and sponsor and sponsorships. So there was that encouragement and that support. And I can tell you that is one of the things that I felt like I was lacking for a time was just 
board support. You know, we are not meant to do this life alone at all. And we are definitely not meant to do life alone as leaders. We can become very, very isolated, especially if we're in smaller organizations where we are the only staff member or just one of a few, maybe the only full-time staff member. If we don't have the support of our board, it, I, I see burnout happening even sooner. I see unhealthy habits start forming because the the I would say the executive kind of steps into some of those board roles and that blurs those boundaries. So in the instances I have seen, strong board support has been the common denominator. And what I think I hear you saying, and I hope you push back if I'm not, if I'm not kind of encapsulating this well, what I think I hear you saying is not just strong board support, but really a, a board that is that sees itself, it sees part of its job of helping a leader to be all that they can be, to support them, to challenge them in the right ways, but also give them opportunities for personal and professional growth. Not strong board like, okay, we're here on top of you and we're going to we're going to do, we're going to tell you exactly what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. No, you are, you hit the nail on the head. That is exactly what I'm saying. It's, it's understanding that yes, we are professionals, but we're also human beings. And that was one of the things that before I left this last organization, I had a one-on-one very vulnerable conversation with one person in my in our board leadership at the time. And I let them know where I was with my mental health and and how the job was contributing to that and what my needs were. And I made those asks. And that was really hard. It was really hard to have that conversation, especially being in uh, you know, the good old boys world, being the young female in that position, being able to have a voice and to express it to someone who I didn't know how it was going to be received. And at the time, it was received well, and I felt so good. I thought, this is going to be this pivotal point in my career where I am heard, things change. Dolph, two months later, I am getting ready to make a a big move. I was moving out of the house I was in, and I reminded the staff or this leader, excuse me, this board leader of that conversation and he had zero recollection. And that was a breaking point for me because I was coming to you as a human being who had needs outside of my professional world, but needed it to be known that these things overlap. You know, we spend more time working than we do anything else in our life, in our lives. And I needed it to be known that if one area was that out of whack, that another area was going to be impacted. I needed to find some way for work and personal life to cohabitate. And I thought that that conversation was a turning point. And to hear that that conversation couldn't even be recalled by this board leader, I just broke down in tears. I remember the moment and I thought, I'm done. I cannot, I can't do this. And that was that was a big turning point for me because, as you said, it's being supported both professionally and personally. It's not all about the job all the time. 
And I will say, I think one of the systemic issues, and I don't think this is exclusive to our sector, but I do think one of the systemic issues in organizations is that they create this perverse incentive system where it's the people who are willing to literally destroy their lives for the organization who they value the most. It's like, yes, you know, you're willing to ignore your personal needs, ignore your family's needs, and, you know, really, you know, dramatically harm yourself and your world around you. But we think it's good for the organization. Yeah, this is a conversation I had recently with an expert in organizational culture. And I asked her, what is one of the greatest myths you see in the culture of organizations today? And she said, hands down hustle culture, where you have to work hard 24 seven. If you're not working hard enough, you're never going to make it. That is a myth that we had this incredible conversation surrounding the negative impacts of hustle culture and what it does to us and essentially what it does to our organizations. You know, that that we see burnout more frequently. We see higher turnover. That's not good for individuals. That's not good for organizations. I think of the impact that turnover has on an organization. That, that's a lot of your budget right there. Mm-hmm. Training, hiring, training, the turnover. You know, you've got people that are taking on other responsibilities they wouldn't normally take on. That doesn't benefit anyone and definitely not your mission. Right. And, you know, it's interesting. Like, we all have points when we have to hustle, but it's kind of like standing on your toes. You can stand on your toes for five minutes. You can't stand on your toes for five hours. Just can't do it. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. And we all go through those seasons, right? It can be because there's a major event coming up. It can be because that's that's a very specific season for your organization or around your cause. That happens. We know that in life things ebb and flow and that's okay, but it's this thought that it has to be a consistent hustle or you're never going to make it, that's whenever we see the big issues really start to surface. Mm-hmm. A- absolutely. Well, as we continue to sort of unpack, we've talked some about uh, compensation, and I'm not quite ready to leave that yet because th- there are some best practices I think we should probably explore that help create a more equitable um, negotiation opportunity in the compensation process. And so um, I know one of the things that I've become a huge believer in is that every organization, when it posts a position, should post the range. And it shouldn't be a range that's like $25,000. It should be a five dollars or $10,000 range, depending on how much you're paying. So like if, it's a, if you're paying $150 to $160, it should probably be a $10,000 range. If you're paying $45 to $50, it should be a $5,000 range. But the reason I say that is that way, regardless of how much someone is currently making, they know that they will at least make the bottom of the range. And they know that chances are the person who had the job before them made no more than 10% than they did. Yeah, and I will say this, I'm in Colorado. Colorado actually has an Equal Pay for Equal Work Act now where you have to disclose the salary, which I think is incredible. And I think for any professional out there, especially nonprofit professionals who are looking for new jobs, 
Nonprofit salaries vary so much depending on the size of the organization, the resources, the longevity, all of these things you don't really know. And so you can be ta- you can take a lot of time and a lot of effort to go through this process to explore a new position only to find out that this salary is not even in a range where you can live semi-comfortably. So I love that Colorado, I know Colorado is only one state that has enacted this law. I don't know how many other states or regions have done this. I don't, I think it's by state law, but I am 100% behind the Equal Pay for Equal Work Act. I think we should have to disclose salaries. We know we've run, both of us have run organizations before. We know what our budget is. We know what we can do, what we cannot do. We need to be honest about that. By doing that, we will ultimately have, we'll end up having to, frankly, um, We'll have fewer candidates, but the candidates we have will be better positioned to actually take the job. So not only does it not only does it save you as the candidate time, you're not wasting your time, but the employer also, or the prospective employer, is not interviewing people that are not actual candidates for the position. Right. I think we're getting closer to our ideal candidate when we can be honest about what the salary is, what the benefits are. And what the requirements of that position are. I think this also comes into play when we're looking at remote and office requirements now. That's a really blurry place to live right now. Some places are going back to the office 100%. Some are remote, especially women who are not looking to go back to the office. They've found a way to make it work better in their home, being able to I don't want to say take care of their home or just take care of their kids because I know that is not what happens for the most part. I know a lot of women who are working it from home and they have someone helping them at home, but it's easier for them in a work-life balance. And if that helps them do their job better, we need to be better supporters of this hybrid model, but understanding how that works for our organization. It's not going to work for everyone but everyone can find a way to do it. We did it during the pandemic, which helps us see it is possible. We all got pushed towards some things that we thought were impossible in our brains, and we're seeing this can work. So how can we be better advocates for our employees, especially women, and provide them this opportunity to do good work and to provide those benefits in their personal lives? Absolutely. The other thing that I really think employers should consider. This is a little controversial. Sorry, clearly I'm stuck on wages. I apologize, Jess. I'm, I'm stuck on That's conversation okay. right now. Um, <laughs> but one of the other things I, that I think employers should consider, and it is somewhat controversial, is full transparency about what people make in your organization. Mm, that is it, controversial. You are it, right. <laughs> it is. But, you know, to me, it is not shameful just to say, no, we're going to publish everybody's salary. And you could even actually put it in the higher letters. By the way, we're going to make your salary public. And and I think what that does is it then allows people to say, okay, I'm a program manager. That person's a program manager. That person's supervising five people. I'm supervising five people. Why is that person making $20,000 more a year than I am? Because it almost feels to me like this secrecy around salary and compensation benefits the employer much more than it does the employee. So how do you feel 
experience or education or all of these other things that help us do our job well, how does it play into that? You may have the same job description, the same job role, but do you think that compensation should change based on experience or education, depending on what the role is? So so that's a fair question. And I do think you're right. There are intangibles. But but if if someone is twice as experienced and has an additional degree over the other person, from my perspective, if they're each doing the same job and they're functioning at the same level. So so as an example, and I've certainly done this where where like I might bring a first-time manager in at a lower rate, and I will say to that person, because we are going to be providing you with the coaching, training, and support necessary for you to be a good manager. And at the end of your first year, and this is, by the way, this is in the, the letter of hire. So at the end of your first year, you will be eligible for a salary increase of up to X amount based on your ability to learn this position. And and I'll share with you, I actually one time hired somebody and, and pretty much said, here are the skills, we believe you can learn these skills, here are the skills we need you to learn in the first six months. And you know what? And again, that was in their letter of hire. And they were eligible, and I'm sorry, I don't remember how much, I think it was like a two... It's like a $2 an hour raise or something like that, which doesn't sound like much, but when you multiply it times, you know, 40 hours and 52 weeks, it's, you know, it, it's four grand or something like that. And the funny thing was the person had learned those skills in the first three months and we gave the person the raise. Because we said, when once you have these skills, you know, you're at this level and we're going to pay you at that level. And, you know, this reminds me, I was talking about, you know, hiring biases earlier. I was having this conversation about hiring, interviewing. What does that look like on both sides? And I think one of the things people can do when they're on the other side, when they're on that the side where they're being recruited, if they're in that interview process asking, what is keeping you from hiring me? What skills do you desire me that I do not currently have? And if that's a barrier to being hired, being able to say what you're saying, if I can receive this type of training or I will dedicate myself to this type of training over the next three to six months, is this a possibility? You know, I think I think we can do better on both sides of being able to ask those questions rather than just just thinking, oh, well, I'm I'm not a fit. And on the opposite side, when we're interviewing, being willing to know that this person has a lot of really great skills or they are an incredible culture fit for us, but we need a little bit more skill-wise in these areas and asking them if they're willing to come in and learn those things rather than dismissing them completely. Mm-hmm. I, I, absolutely. As long as, as an employer, you're confident they're going to be able to learn them. That's always the trick. You've got to be confident because we also don't want to set people up to fail where you then end up having to let them go because they've not learned all of the skills. Like, to me, that's the flip side. It's like, we've got to do that. Part of what this leads me to think about, and gosh, this is 12 years ago or something like that. One of my professional mentors, I was negotiating for a new job. It was an executive director job. And I was really struggling with negotiation because I did not feel like I could ask for everything I wanted. And one of my professional mentors, she runs a a nonprofit organization that really she kind of built from about a $25 million organization and like $150 million a year organization. And she said to me, Dolph, you will never have more leverage with the board than you do now. They have offered you the position and you have not yet accepted it. 
they are more vulnerable than you are. They want you. So this is the time to ask for everything you want. And th- and this is what I love. This is actually what she said to me. And get it all in writing. If there's a future promise, get it in writing. Get the amount. Get all of that. Because you will never have this much leverage with this organization once you say yes. That is a really good point. And I'll share with you, I only half followed her advice. And I was only half happy about the deal I got. Mm. That's interesting. You know, whenever I told my story about uh, trying to negotiate up front and being promised things up front and those things not coming to fruition, I definitely never thought to get all of those things in writing. You know, I I had that good faith in the organization and the people and the leaders. And there were, don't get me wrong, there were incredible people in this organization. They just were not always the ones that were the leaders that I was working most closely with and and who were making these decisions. So I love that advice. And what we were saying earlier about, um, I think in the organization I'm working in now, right seat, right person. So you can have the right person, but in the wrong seat. That's not good for your organization. You can have the seat available and not the right person and the same, you'll have a similar outcome. So it's making sure that you have the right person, whether that's culture, skills, whatever it is you're looking for, and in a place where they can succeed. Because you're right, you, we don't want to set them up for failure. And sometimes we can have that right person and it can still be failure because we don't have them in the right spot in our organization. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, Jess, I cannot believe why we've been we've been chatting for over half an hour and we've not fully unpacked everything. And so I actually feel bad. I, I feel like we've not covered it the topic well. We may have to have you back on. I think we've I think all of our episodes are booked or all of our recording dates are booked pretty much for the rest of the year. We may have to have you back on next year so we can finish unpacking this because I because I feel like it's not finished. Um, yeah, there's a lot to say. And right. and you're right. There there are so many aspects of this topic, it's hard to cover it in a short amount of time and to know what to uncover when and how, I couldn't agree with you more. So off the map question, I had one off the map question for you and I've changed it, which by the way, often happens. I'm like, this is what I'm going to ask. I was going to ask you about your Pez dispenser collection and I've, I've already thrown that one out because as we were talking, um, so I have to share with you one of my dirty little secrets. Um, I love dirty little secrets, and and it's and and it's probably not that much of a secret. I'm about to share it with all the listeners, and um, I can't swim. Can't swim. Dolph, My, I have to say, swimming is not just recreational. Swimming is also a life saving skill. Uh, you know, especially your own if you're in the water. Absolutely. So, but so as someone who cannot swim. I have to ask you, because I think, I'm assuming you're a swimmer, but based on having looked at your resume, I think you've, you've swum once or twice in your life. I just swam yesterday. <laughs> okay. And just real quick, and I'm, I'm married to someone that did an Ironman, so like did like two plus mile swim as part of his 147 mile Ironman. And I'll also share with you every now and then, because I run like a 5K or a 10K, and some of his friends will be like, maybe one day you'll work yourself up to an Ironman. I'm like, I'm never going to learn how to swim. And then like, well, maybe you work yourself up to a marathon. And I'm like, no, why would I, why would I endure that kind of physical pain? No, I'm perfectly happy at 5K and 10K. But so here's my question for you. So what I know about swimmers is every swimmer has a favorite stroke, I think it's called. Yes. So what's yours? Okay. 
If I'm, I'm going to answer, I'm going to give you two answers. One, I would say my favorite stroke is probably the butterfly. Backstroke is a second favorite. And if we're talking event, I love the 200 individual medley where I get to do all of the strokes. I love doing everything. I was watching Olympic trials for swimming just a couple of weeks ago. And my boyfriend and I were sitting on the couch and he's a cyclist. So you're talking about that you're a triathlete. I have a cyclist who does outrageous things on a bike for a very long time. And he was watching. He said, oh, is this the one where they change every time? I'm like, yes, this is called the I am. So we are, we are learning each other's sports. And the I am, for those of you who are not swimming people, are the, that's the event where they change strokes every time. <laughs> and um, it's the medley, but how many strokes total? So there's four strokes. Okay. There's the butterfly, the backstroke, breaststroke, and freestyle. So when you're swimming it individually, so the individual medley, you swim the strokes in that order. However, there's also a medley relay, but the order is different. It's, yes, I know, it's really confusing because you have backstroke and you can't touch the wall and have someone dive in doing backstroke. So the medley relay starts off with backstroke. Got it. Okay. Yep. Not to confuse you, but. Okay. Well, when they when they add the dog paddle or the don't drown stroke, I'm there. I'm totally. Or the, Can't wait or, to or see the you. walk LA, in the shallow 2028. end. Or walk in the shallow end. I'm there. I'm totally there. Well, Jess, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I know we talked about something really serious today. I, I just, I really appreciate the way you approach the subject. And I also, you know, frankly, listeners, you know, we, we strip out the video so you can't see this. But, but even when talking about something really serious, Jess still has an ability to literally like light up and smile and really be present and be there. So Jess, thank you so much for like being here. And listeners, I want to make sure that you know how to reach out to Jess. And so there's a couple of ways that you can do that. The first is you can always find her at jesscooperconsulting.com. And I'll share with you, she's winding down some of her consulting, but there's some things that you can still get there. And so, for example, she has a nonprofit wellness online course. It is relatable, and it offers a different perspective on organizational structure. It is well worth your time to go and check out that course. There also is a really great resource page that I recommend that you just take a look at. It's everything from virtual presentations to um, nonprofit um, body spring reset and, of course, hiring your first executive director. Now, Jess is also affiliated with the Bonfire Effect, which is a marketing and branding company based in, um, I, I want to say Fort Collins, Colorado. I almost said Fort Springs, but that's because I'm combining two Colorado cities. So based in Fort Collins, Colorado. And then finally, make sure that you check out Jess's Instagram. Um, she offers snippets of digestible information. When you have a limited time to read a blog post, you can just scroll through her Instagram feed. So we will link to all of that in our show notes at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. Hey, Jess, thank you so much for coming on. Dolph, thank you so much. Thank you for the conversation and allowing me to share some of this story 
being removed from it and being able to shed some light on some of the discrepancies that do exist in our sector. And I just really appreciate this conversation with you and just how comfortable you have made me feel in sharing this story and discussing the things that are going on in our sector. I appreciate it. And I appreciate you very much. Thank you. And listeners, if you found value in this conversation, I want you to download episode 61 with Daria Torres on engineering equity into your organization. Today was a conversation about equity, and that was also an excellent conversation about equity. And then also I want you to consider listening to episode 70, A Culture on Purpose with Mackenzie Wren. You know, we touched on culture a good little bit today, and culture doesn't happen by accident. Either you build a culture or you end up with a culture you did not intend to have. So also a really good episode. That's A Culture on Purpose with Mackenzie Wren. And listeners, finally, if if you've made it to the end, you're what I like to think of as a hardcore listener. So if you're here... You really should register for the Ask Dolph Live on August 26th. Go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com and register. And that is our show for the week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And, you know, I actually get tired of saying this, but the lawyers make me. The lawyers are like, Dolph, you have to say it. I'm not an accountant nor an attorney, and neither I nor the Goldenberg Group You know what's coming. Provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This show is, guess what, for informational purposes only and should not be relied on for tax, legal, and accounting advice. If that's what you need, please find a licensed, qualified professional in your area and get the advice you need.